hello and welcome back to the Nowhere Office, wherever you are. With me, Julia Hobsbawm. And me, Stefan Stern. This is the podcast which looks at the world of work as it is, as it could be, should be, might be, with some of the leading thinkers and doers of the day. This is actually our last programme of 2023, and we've had a hugely fascinating year talking to a number of people, but we're really thrilled to be joined now by Dr. Gleb Sipersky, who is the prolific commentator and expert and very outspoken expert on leadership and leadership in a hybrid era. He is the CEO of the marvellously entitled Disaster Avoidance Experts, more of which are non. And Mm -hmm. I'm, well, welcome to the Nowhere Office. Thank you so much, Julia. And I've really been enjoying following your work with the Nowhere Office, and I'm honoured to be on. Where are you joining us from? Columbus, Ohio. It's the American heartland. (laughs) Right. What it is, it is. uh, You can reach about 50% of America within a one day's drive from Columbus. So that is very much a heartland sort of situation. Tell us about what is going on as we end the year. There seem to me two narratives playing. One narrative says everybody's slowly trickling back to the office, everyone's going to get over their moment of madness. All this horrible, annoying hybrid work is going to end. And then there's another narrative backed up by the science and data of people such as yourself, such as Nicholas Bloom, who I just interviewed recently for Bloomberg. And that narrative says not so fast and that actually you may see a bit of a flattening, but that ultimately you're going to see what Professor Bloom, I think, calls a Nike swoosh, a rise back. Mm -hmm. In other words, remote work. And hybrid work and flexible work is here. So could you just kick us off? Can we call you Gleb? Can we can we yes. pitch the doctor for the purposes of this end of, of year <laughs> DMOB show? Uh, Gleb, what's which <laughs> what's the truth? What's actually happening? Well, if you look at the actual data, you'll see very clearly that the situation with the return to office right now is about the same as it was a year ago. So despite all the return to office mandates, despite all the madness with the Labor Day plans in the United States and the push in the UK by various government ministries and private companies, it's the Castle Systems Barometer, which has been the premier metric for measuring the return to office. And the Castle System is a badge swiping system. And they started their barometer at around the beginning, right before the pandemic, so in February 2020. And they found that over the last year, it's been about 50% of the badge swipes in the top 10 cities of the badge swipes that there were in February 2020. So over the whole last year, despite all the push to office, Amazon, other big companies, AT&T, you know, right now in the UK, Nationwide is trying to push back to office. It's just not really going to change much. And the reason it's not changing much is because despite the companies saying that they're forcing workers back to the office, workers are resisting. And the managers have helped 26 companies figure out their hybrid remote plans. And we can talk about that. But what's happening is that there is a lot of resistance on the ground level. And the managers are not willing 
to force workers back into the office and that aren't willing to discipline workers in any serious way and you know, with a tight labor market, this is not going to be a future of returning to the office that's going to be much higher than it is right now, which is around 50%. That's what the Castle Systems Barometer has been like over this whole last year. That's been what's happening over the last year. We can talk about the future, but I want to make sure right. to talk about what's and been happening over the last year. Also, let's talk a little bit about the data sets. I mean, the Castle data sure. system is not the only data system of show course. in town. And, and there's been some suggestion, which I have to say I wasn't aware of until it was suggested, that it doesn't, it's not as its footprint of covering office occupancy isn't quite as extensive in America. I mean, the trend is there, but I think what the pushback is saying is two things. Firstly, relying on one data set of a certain suite of buildings does not, you know, a, a hybrid policy picture make. And the second is that the, the labour market is, of course, loosening, that a recession is looming, we are led to believe, and therefore that this may not go through into the future. So I know Stefan wants to jump in, but but what, what about that idea that the data isn't, in fact, as robust as people say it is? So yes, yeah, so let's talk about a little bit of the data. So we can go to another report, which is the Flex Scoop report. So that is quite uses a completely different metrics to evaluate what's going on. So you can take a look at the Flex quarter, the fourth quarter 2023 scoop report, which I have I brought up in front of me right now. So right now it's saying that 38% of companies now require full-time and office work, which is down from 39% in quarter three of 2023 and from 49% at the start of 2023. And so that is an example of what's going on right now. So right now, 62% of US companies offer remote work location flexibility up from 51% at the start of 2023. Full-time in office has now dropped to 38% of US companies, down 11 points from the start of 2023. So it's different data sets, completely different. It's using a completely different data set and it's finding approximately the same thing that Castle Systems is finding, perhaps even more so because it's finding that full-time in office has been decreasing. And so clearly from looking from a different perspective, different report, we have alignment on the findings. And let me be very clear in terms of incentives. Castle Systems has an incentive to have more people coming back to the office. Let's just be honest about that. <laughs> they want more people to come to the office and swipe their badges, right? If you have full-time remote work, they go out of business. <laughs> so they have no reason to uh, be funky about the numbers. Scoop also is just kind of a pretty clear, just they're evaluating what's going on. They have no reason to be funky about the numbers. In fact, they're uh, what they offer separately from the report is office scheduling software, right? They're going to go out of business if they if people are working full-time remote or if lots of people are working remotely. They don't have a reason to lie. They just are just evaluating these things. So we have the FlexScoop report, which is a newer data set using different metrics. You have Castle Systems, which is using, I mean, pretty steady trend from February 2020, which is kind of the best way that we can me measure, and they're both showing the same results. So I'm, I'm pretty confident 
that the data is pretty clear on that. And I think the fact that the FlexScoop report is showing that some less companies are requiring full-time in-office is also aligned with research showing that companies that are requiring full-time in-office are growing slower. So we have a number of reports, including the Flex report, showing that companies that are that are requiring full-time in the office are showing slower growth and, of course, worse retention, and they are losing talent. And so companies are responding to that by allowing more flexibility. I mean, I speak to dozens of leaders every week, whether in private one-on-one phone calls, whether in presentations, and they're complaining to me. They're telling me, like, look, tell us how we can be full-time in the office and still have our best talent. And I'm telling them that that's not realistic, that that is not a scenario uh, in which they will be successful, that the talent that they will have, especially the younger talent, is not willing to do that. So if you look at the demographics, for example, you see that baby boomers are the ones most willing to spend full-time in the office, and Gen Z is the least willing to spend full-time in the office. Now, that doesn't mean that Gen Z wants to work full-time remote. They are the demographic that is most desirable, desirous of a hybrid modality. Millennials are the demographic that wants to spend most time fully remote. But more millennials are willing to work full-time in the office than Gen Z are willing to work full-time in the office. So you're really losing that young talent if you're doing that. And that's the continuity for companies if you're really working on full-time in the office. So pretty clearly, hybrid is going to be the future. And I think I do agree with Nick Bloom, and we can talk about the future. We haven't talked about that yet. There's a number of reasons to suspect that he's right about that Nike swoosh, although I'm not sure it will be more of a hockey stick. It will probably be a slow escalation. We can talk about that. But that's kind of about the data set. That's what I want to share. But hidden in those numbers, Gleb, will be obviously a great degree of variation, uh, depending on context, depending on culture of the business, size of the business, where they are in their growth story or otherwise. Can you say a bit more about some of that variation? For example, we do hear anecdotally, certainly of younger workers who are frustrated that they don't get access to senior colleagues when it suits them, when it would help them. And if they're being told to be, for example, fully or largely remote, they're actually being denied access to something as well. So how can we kind of make this hybridity really work well for as many people as possible? So you have two components to the question. One is about the demographics within that. So let's talk about the companies. So looking at companies, I'm looking at the Scoop report. It found It's finding that 93% of companies that they study that started after 2010 offer work location flexibility. And so that the younger the company is, the more flexibility it's offering. So smaller companies are offering more flexibility. That's one, that's one thing. Then tech companies are offering more flexibility, obviously. So if you're thinking about tech companies, they are going to be offering more flexibility than others. And then if the professional service firms are going to be offering more flexibility and finance. So if I'm looking at their top five most flexible industries. So technology, 97% of companies offer some form of flexibility. Media entertainment, 92%. Insurance, 91%. Professional services, 87%. And financial services, 87%. And then going down, of course, you know, with the least being manufacturing and logistics, offering least amount of flexibility. And so 
it's going to be depend on industry and it's going to depend on company size and company age. So the smallest companies offer the most flexibility and the youngest companies offer the most flexibility and the most, like I said, the industry. So that's kind of one. Now going on to your second point, that relates to exactly what I was talking about. Gen Z wants to spend the most time hybrid. I'm not sure, Gleb, again, and I'm, you know, we're mm. on the same page in the sense that I I like you absolutely believe that the future is hybrid. And so I don't have, if you like, skin in the game to argue to the contrary. But mm-hmm. equally, there are data sets that do show that Gen Z actually do like the office because yes, of it gives them stability and hot coffee mm-hmm. and maybe hot showers. So I I think that Stefan is right, that there is variation. And I wonder whether this isn't what is causing consternation amongst leaders. And your big specialty is leadership and communication and strategy. Mm -hmm. And isn't it the case that the pandemic absolutely blindsided leaders who were wanting a one-size-fits-all, unvariated, global model of how to go to work? Mm -hmm. And what we're dealing with now is that's not possible. As, as you've both been saying, industry by industry, age demographic, you know, the Gen Zs, I've seen some indication that they love going to have the option of the office, but they also want the freedom and they want the offices they go to to have purpose and not to just be grind out the work, you know. So there's all. So isn't, can we talk a little bit about the leadership issue here? Isn't the problem leaders rather than the pandemic and hybrid working and technology. Let's just cut into that. Sure, but briefly about the Gen Z. So I think what we're saying is pretty similar. I do want to highlight that looking at all the surveys, Gen Z does not want to work full-time in the office. That's the difference that I'm drawing up. So I don't think we're disagreeing. Gen Z wants to work in the office. Yeah. Yeah, they want to work in the office something like less than half the work week, but more than one day a week. That's probably about where they would land, probably two days a week. Maybe some would land three days a week. They want to get mentoring. They want to build relationships, but they don't want to work full-time in the office because who wants to commute and then just sit on video conference calls all day? Baby boomers. That's who does it. Those are the people who generally have more of that desire. So Gen Z does not, generally speaking, have that desire. So that's kind of just briefly mentioning that. Now, going on to leaders... What we are seeing in leaders is also demographic difference. So pretty clearly, and 50 years old is around the split I've been seeing, generally speaking, that leaders who are over 50 around that are less willing for to have a more flexible approach. And those who are younger than 50 are more willing to have a more flexible approach. And that's not everything. I've, Like I said, I've worked with 26 companies and I've worked with a number of senior leaders, well-established ones who are very willing to have a flexible approach. But it is generally the case that older leaders are less willing to have a flexible approach and they want to have the model that the same approach is good for everyone. (laughs) The straitjacket approach that you mentioned, Julia, where everyone would just have the same approach. And that's a problem. And then you can understand and empathize with why they have that perspective. They have been successful in that modality. 
that is what they have sort of speak grown up in in their professional careers. They have, and so there's a cognitive bias. So that's part of my area of expertise. The mistakes we make because of how our brains are wired. That's called the status quo bias. So the status quo bias is a tendency for us to stick to what we know, what we're comfortable with, and where we've been successful. So these leaders who've been successful for 20, 30, 40 years in their careers, in their leadership roles, they know how to manage in that setting. And they don't know how to manage in other settings. There's another cognitive bias called functional fixedness. It's kind of like the hammer-nail syndrome. When you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So when you learn one way of managing, one way of functioning, one way of collaborating, one way of leading, and you see that as functional, you apply that in a whole variety of contexts, then you don't realize that it's starting to become dysfunctional as people change their perspectives on flexibility and well-being. The mm -hmm. pandemic has fundamentally changed the dynamics of how we work. You know, in in terms of uh, biases, yeah. Gleb, we should, we should have some transparency because uh, Julia and I are in our, shall I say, politely, we're in our late 50s, but you look yeah, quite I'm a lot younger 40s. than that to me. So, uh, sure. my, my, I'm in my mid-40s. Sure. I'm in my mid-40s, yep. Uh, so yeah. I was born in 1981. So okay. not, not that uh, young, not that old. But, so, yeah, so I'm in that demographic that's kind of the older millennial demographic. That's yeah. my demographic, right? Just before the Gen X. <laughs> yes. So, yes, it's funny. My wife is actually born in 79. So she's Gen X and I was born in 81. So I am a millennial, but, you know, the difference is two years. <laughs> Leb, you've got an interesting um, take on leaders. And I, I do feel that leaders have had a little bit of an easy ride in this debate where they've been able to mm. say, oh, it was the pandemic, oh, it's the technology, oh, it's the young, rather than we are not rising to the challenge. Mm -hmm. Now, there must be yep. exceptions, and I'd like to talk about the exceptions. I'd sure. love to name-check some of the organisations around the world. Perhaps we all agree are rising to the challenge, mm -hmm. but just the week that we're recording this last interview of 2023 is the week when an extraordinary thing happened in the United States where a congressional hearing heard from the leaders of Harvard, NU, and MIT about yeah. culture of runaway racism and anti-Semitism uh, on campus. And it seems that it, it totally irrespective of what you feel politically about what they feel politically, something has gone tremendously wrong, both with the behavior of students on campus and the leader's response to it. What do you think? Isn't this a really extraordinary moment, what just happened in Congress? Yeah, it's pretty terrible that leaders couldn't, the leaders of three top universities, couldn't straightforwardly condemn very clear calls for Jewish genocide. I mean, that's ludicrous. It is truly ludicrous. I, Mind your background is Jewish. I published an article recently about this. I was sharing about that, about the need for empathy. I'm talking about my family, which was unfortunately suffered in the Holocaust. And so my family still grew up in the former Soviet territory. So we suffered from anti-Semitism there. Fortunately, we were able to leave from my homeland. So my dad is Ukrainian, Jewish. My mom is Moldovan. 
And so we were able to leave that territory when it was freed from Russian domination in 1991. I was 10 years old and came to the United States and I was able to be much more transparent about my Jewish identity with that, that, that anti-Semitism there. But and it's Blair, horrible. Just to, to interrupt that. you deliberately, yeah. I'm afraid. I I'm happen to be Jewish too. Stefan happens to be Jewish. Mm. But my perspective is not that I want to dwell on the on the anti-Semitism that was expressed, because there there's a war that's ongoing at the moment, and sure. uh, it, what 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 I'm interested in is your take as somebody mm. who is a disaster avoidance expert on how corporate leaders seem to be creating cultural problems or not minimizing cultural problems, and this, mm -hmm. to my mind, is as important and significant a matter as we close 2023. As hybrid working, you know, you've got the president and CEO of Pfizer came out to say mm -hmm. it's a disgrace. You've got these universities. So you've actually got leaders arguing mm -hmm. in public, appearing to be impotent, presiding over cultural communities in which there's some sort of anarchy. So isn't that as live an issue as hybrid working is really what I'm saying sure. for the workplace? Sure. I think that's an issue, but it's a process issue. So we see the same sort of not very smart approaches by leaders in hybrid work as we see in other issues. I'll give an example that's right now in the news. So the, the, there was a merger of Broadcom and VMware, and this, the new CEO, Hak Tan, said uh, told all the team members to get your butts back into the office so they're can canceling remote work now when you use terms like get your butt back into the office that is incredibly disrespectful that is treating people like children and that is infantilizing them in fact so when you're thinking about the kind of inability to manage communities inability to address resistance to office mandates, you have a parallel to what these presidents of universities are doing in inability to address their students chanting pro-Intifada slogans and sometimes even calling for Jewish genocide. You are having a clear disconnection between the leadership and the employees, leadership and students. And so I think that there is there are clear parallels to what we're seeing in terms of leaders not stepping up to the plate and not really knowing how to manage their teams and how to approach these questions. And there are better CEOs that we can talk about yes, who please. are having an approach that's much more effective. But uh, that's yes, kind of what I wanted to of, share. The, the conversations that are working, what, what do they feel like? And if you can mention names even better, but what, what is the nature of the, of the discussions that actually work? Sure, I'm happy to talk about discussions that actually work. Mm -hmm. So one fundamental thing is actually asking their team members what they want to do. And that is something that very few CEOs, when you look at surveys, something like under half of CEOs have done surveys of what it actually needs to be done in hybrid work and remote work. I've worked with a number, like I said, I helped 26 organizations. So for example, the Information Sciences Institute at the University of Southern California with whose executive director is Craig Knobloch, 
has done a really good job of first serving their team members on what they need, then specifically solving the problems that are expressed. What do you need in hybrid work? What are the challenges? What are you experiencing? In order to have the best performance, to have high engagement, high morale, then the next step is to actually address these problems. What are concrete, specific ways of solving problems? So some problems would be common problems are how do you have effective performance management in hybrid work? Because managers don't know how to manage people except by management by walking around. So that's a problem. And we can talk about how to address that. Another problem is how do you solve collaboration in hybrid work? That's a big problem. How do you solve that? One of my clients is Atlassian. So Atlassian has some problems in how do you onboard and mentor junior team members. And I was working with Annie Dean there, who is in charge of remote work there. And she and I have been working to help them figure out how to have effective mentoring of junior team members so that you have continuity in that hybrid remote work setting. So those are effective approaches. Not one of my clients, but Mark Benioff at Salesforce has been doing a good job of customizing to different roles so that it's kind of a team-led model where different teams and different roles decide when they're coming to the office for what needs. Microsoft, Satya Nadella has also had that approach. So they've had a pretty, again, not one of my clients there, they've had a pretty good approach of customizing to what they actually need per team leader, per member, so that it's not just a top-down approach, like come to the office, everyone comes three days a week. That just doesn't work very well. So quite a quite a human, iterative, um, balanced listening exercise, quite different from the slightly arm's length questionnaire-based uh, model. You, you <laughs> seem to be describing that not only um, is it led from the top, but that it really is a proper listening and learning and therefore responding exercise. Leb, we can't let you go without talking about the future and AI at work. Isn't, mm-hmm. isn't AI going to sort of knock out of the park this debate about where people are working from and hybrid? I mean, in a year's time when we talk mm-hmm. to you, the disaster avoidance expertise you're giving surely will have evolved beyond this moment where you're literally having to handhold leaders into believing it's possible to iterate their hybrid working practices. So what are we going to be talking about a year from now in relation to the technology? Yeah, it's interesting. There was just a recent headline about uh, CEO who believes in remote work, but uh, there's only one challenge that they see, which is how to be creative and innovative in remote work. And that's an example where one of my clients who I can't name because I haven't finished my work for them, so it's a tech company, and they haven't been having that problem. They felt that, oh, people are producing, they're being individually productive, they're doing good collaboration, but they're not doing innovation and creativity very well. So then I worked with them to use ChatGPT as an innovation and brainstorming tool. So ChatGPT, one of the benefits of it, I mean, it hallucinates, there's some problems, but it's really good for brainstorming. So for brainstorming some marketing ideas, for brainstorming new product ideas, for brainstorming new user personas and tools, new features that they can add. And so that has really helped them 
greatly advanced their innovation and they were thinking about, well, do we return to the office more? Do we not? They have something like 120 people and they were thinking about whether to keep their 1.2 million office space or not. And now that they found that they were able to use generative AI as a tool for innovation and creativity, they decided to let go of that office space. And now they're pretty comfortable working full-time remotely. And so that's an example of a use, a specific case study of how generative AI has solved a very concrete problem that facilitates and allows more flexible work. And I'm seeing that in my clients more and more. So using generative AI as a tool to facilitate coordination, to facilitate information sharing. All of these things are enabled by more remote work. So that uh, they're enabling remote work. Generative AI is enabling people to do more, to spend more time working remotely. So it's definitely going to be the case that with the rise of new technology, it's kind of what Nick Bloom is talking about with the Nike swoosh. I think it's going to be a little bit earlier than he thinks because generative AI is enabling more people to do more remote work easily and more productively and more creatively and solving the problems associated with people spending time working remotely. Now, uh, to be clear, I don't necessarily endorse everyone working full-time remote. I'm generally in favor of a hybrid model because I think that right now, at least, in-office collaboration, collaboration activities, more intense ones, are better done in the office for most people. To be clear that Nicholas Bloom actually says that he thinks that those workers that are currently working fully remote are more at risk of AI, Mm -hmm. making them redundant than the hybrid Mm -hmm. workers where I think you made a fascinating point I hadn't actually thought of about AI. I mean, had you thought of that, Stefan, about how AI is creating the innovations that allows people to say, well, do we need them in or don't we? Stefan, what do you think? Well, I think that where the human factor still comes in is, of course, is making that very important, the crucial distinction between uh, innovation and hallucination. And and, and what the AI, however clever the AI is, even a year from now, I don't think humans are going to be completely redundant in making that distinction. Well, I'm not sure, sure that AI is even going to be there a year from now. Five years? That's a different conversation, but um, I'm still I've still got quite a lot of faith in Homo sapiens. Yeah, AI is definitely there for creating, for creation, for ideas. It's not there for evaluation. So I just want to differentiate those two pieces of innovation. It's really good for creating new ideas, but not evaluating which ones are the best. Well, in five years' time, will you still be doing this kind of work, or do you think you <laughs> will you will be doing a different kind of job? I mean, let's predict. Um, the big question around AI is often, sure. is it going to take the job? Is your job going to be taken, Gleb? I think my job will definitely be different. Uh, so I don't think that the conversation about remote work, my expertise is in the future of work. And I think that that job will always need to be done. But my specific, the specific content, the specific way I approach it, I think that's going to be very different and fundamentally disrupted by AI as is going to be everyone's jobs who create content and create ideas. I will need to learn how to share my ideas, how to use generative AI much better to both edit, innovate, and convey my ideas. Well, Gleb, thank you so much for giving us a data-packed, a data-rich, but also opinion-rich conversation today in the NOAA office. You're clearly absolutely on top of it and in the thick of it at the same time. And so thank you so much for being generous uh, with your time today. Thank you so much, Stefan. It was a pleasure to be on. I really appreciate you inviting me. Gosh, never has a more cheerful disaster avoidance expert (laughs) appeared on our programme. Gleb, thank you very much. Well, Stefan, 
I'm a little bit exhilarated and exhausted after our year of cruising around the great minds and businesses of the world and particularly America in this fifth series of the Nowhere Office, which we are just wrapping. How about you? Are you are you to coin an English phrase knackered? I, I'm pretty close to that. Yes, I would say that's right. And I would really like some generative AI to, you know, create some en- generate some energy for me. Uh, maybe <laughs> it can do that by doing some of the chores that take up some of my energy now. But I'm I'm yet to be convinced how it's going to work for me. But perhaps I've just not got skillful enough with it yet. Generative energy. I love it. Well, look, you have been listening and a little bit watching. We're going to get probably get better at the watching bit next year. <laughs> You've been listening to The Nowhere Office with me, Julia Hobsbawm. And me, Stefan Stern. It's a fully connected production. Our editor, Kevin Hershon, and all the people that make this show what it is. We thank you. We wish you season's greetings. It is Hanukkah. It is Christmas. And go well. And we will be with you again in 2024.